Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. And um, you know, while we are going all in on um, expert punditry at the Dispatch this week with the um, with the launch of uh, Nick Cataggio's, uh Boiling Frogs, aka Ala Pundit, um, we're going a different way on the Remnant, and we are going into um, rank wonkery. Um, it's also AI week. I had yesterday or I recorded yesterday. I don't know when you listened to it. Uh, my colleague, uh, economist, Michael strain. And then, uh, today we had a uh, long scheduled and much looked forward to, um, return long time. It's been a long time since he's been here of Nick Everstat, who in a think tank full of very smart people, uh, if we were a prison, everyone would get out of Nick's way when he walked into the cafeteria because uh, he's that smart. Um, he holds the Henry Went Chair in Political Economy. He's a demographer. He knows everything that you could ever want to know and a great deal that you would not want to know about North Korea, but we're not going to talk about that. Instead, we're going to talk about Nick's uh, updated uh, work, uh, Men Without Work, uh, which came out a while ago, but this is the second edition, so it's it's updated almost to the present moment. Uh, Nick Everstadt, welcome back to The Remnant. Hey, Jonah, thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure. Why don't we just sort of do this real easy, um, and why don't you just tell me what the thesis and the evidence behind the thesis of Men Without Work is? There are all sorts of problems uh, in our society that manage somehow to hide in plain sight. And the collapse of work for working age men, 25 to 54, in the modern era, is one of the most amazing problems to have been able to somehow stay invisible for decade after decade. Uh, But what occurred from the 60s to the present was a drop of employment rates for this critical group in our country down to depression era levels and actually a little bit low some of the late depression 
uh, era levels. So today we have a we have uh, a work rate that is actually slightly lower than it was, slightly worse, in other words, than it was in 1940 at the tail end of the Depression when national unemployment rates were almost 15%. Now, uh, this is not because we've got 15% of these guys, you know, in bread lines. Uh, It's because we've got a new problem that nobody imagined when they started putting together our employment statistics system at the end of the Depression. We have four guys who are neither working nor looking for work for every technically unemployed guy who is, you know, uh, out of work but looking for a job. So this flight from work has transformed uh, our society, and it has nothing but bad consequences for the economy, for uh, for our population, and I think probably also for our politics. As part of the level setting, how much of um, how does this break down ethnically or racially? Um, you know, are is it less of a problem for Hispanics because they're disproportionately immigrants? Is it more of a problem for African Americans? Is it more of a problem for white Americans? How, just how does it break down? Yeah, no, great question. Well, so at the moment, we've got more than seven million of these prime age guys who are labor force dropouts. So you know, if you've got seven million people, you've got kind of some of everything, right? Right. But but some are overrepresented and some are underrepresented. African Americans are overrepresented, uh, but. Uh, Asian Americans and Latinos, as you intimated, are underrepresented. So if you did want, you know, this formulation of persons of color, um, the Anglos and persons of color are about the same, represented about the same in toto. Uh, People who have less education on no surprise are way overrepresented but about almost about 40 percent of the guys have at least some college and um a surprisingly large number maybe 20 percent or more have college degrees it's uh guys who are never married are way overrepresented family structure really matters here And there's this uh, Census Bureau category called nativity status, and it doesn't have to do with Christmas. Uh, (laughs) It's whether you were uh, born in the country or not. Um, I don't think this will be a surprise to you, Jonah, but uh, foreign-born guys, no matter what their ethnicity, are uh, way underrepresented in this pool. They're way more likely to be in the labor force. Yeah, I mean, it just seems as a matter of just pure deductive reasoning that you don't go through the hassle of immigrating to the United States to sit on a couch. Yeah, to get right. disability. I mean, yeah, you can do that at home. Um, maybe not get the disability, but... So, since you brought up disability, though, um, I was talking a little bit about this with Michael Strain. Um, how much of this is cultural, and how much of this is economic incentives? In, uh, in this book, in Men Without Work Post-Pandemic Edition, I show a lot of um, evidence about how much use of disability benefits uh, there is by this enormous pool of unworking men. Now, 
neither I nor Mike Strain nor anybody else can prove causality here. You can't Mm -hmm. prove that this caused the situation. What you can show incontestably is that our broken disability archipelago uh, of programs is financing uh, a, a life out of the workforce, which is, uh, in, in essence, at this point, a sort of an alternative to workaday life. Um, it is not a princely income that the men without work are living on. Um, there's an awful lot of misery in this world, uh, but it is an alternative. Given that the sort of the the welfare systems of different states. I know this gets very thorny very quickly because some states it's more generous, but the cost of living is is higher and all of that. But all things being equal, there has to be some considerable diversity geographically in the kinds of disability people are eligible for. Do you see it? Is there a geographic distribution that tells that story among among men without work? You know, I, I look I looked at this uh and I uh, looked at this until my eyes kind of glazed over, and I can't parse out anything um, of interest to report to you on this matter. However, we do have a sort of a natural experiment going on with respect to welfare benefits or uh, state programs and uh, their generosity and uh, worklessness in America. And we have this uh, natural experiment going on in the states of Texas and California. And I write about this in, uh, in the book. You know, our Latino immigrants are about the hardest working people in the world. And they've got about the highest uh, labor force participation rates of any guys in America. And uh, Texas has a welfare state that looks kind of like Texas, and California has a welfare state that you know is pretty much on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, it's much more like like European. And if you take a look at the proportion of Latino immigrant guys who are enrolled in what used to be called food stamps in disability programs in other sorts of uh, means-tested programs. Uh, If you look at their labor force participation rates, they're all lower in California than they are in Texas. So we do have that limited natural experiment to tell us a little bit about this. And is it it too soon to reach a conclusion or... Do we not have the data in? Um, well, well I, I would say that that tells us right there that there is some uh, there is some disincentive effect. If you look at Latino immigrants' work rates and uh, welfare benefit programs in uh, generous California and stingy Texas, uh, the uh, the immigrant uh, profile is like way higher work and way less uh, reliance uh, okay. upon welfare benefits in Texas than in uh, than in California. So, I mean, so I think that tells us something, right? And I mean, so but when you say you 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 study this until your eyes bled, I mean, I'm always interested in the in the sort of the incredibly nerdy methodological reasons why we can't know some things and can know other things. Is it that you is that the data is not available 
or they're not asking the right question or that, um, or is there some other explanation why with the exception of this one natural experiment, you can't find the, uh, a sort of geographic distribution of, of the problem? Well, what, what you'd want to have, I guess, would be uh, you'd want to look at migrants who go from one state to another uh, and go from uh, work to uh, non-work. Uh, you know, get, get, getting the getting the actual you know granular information about the human beings is just like really hard, and yeah. you know, and there isn't. And you, it will not surprise you, but for some reason, nobody's uh, just you know wanted to put together an enormous, expensive data set to be able to do exactly right. that. So instead, we just we look at what we've got and see you know uh, one one of one of the uh, one of the problems, as you know very well, is that people look at these uh, at these scatter plots or whatever you put together, and it's like a Rorschach test, and you find right. what you want to find, right? So. Um, I don't want to get myself into like confirmation bias sort of stuff. One of the reasons why I, I'm curious about this and why I was asking about the cultural versus economic incentive thing is it seems to me it has to be, I mean, I think you have it right, is that it's there's some chicken or the egg part to it. But it, it, it also, if you have a culture that values hard work and work for its own sake, you're less likely to have people spending all their time at home, of particularly course. young men, right? And so it seems to me that, that this is one of the ways out of this is to, like, you know, I had a brother who had drug addiction problems, and one of the things that they always tell you in, in these, in the, the, the various, you know, 12-step kind of programs is, is you need to get out of the culture that rewards and reinforces bad habits. And if we could figure out a way to get people out of, if, if there were an archipelago of, of non-work out there, getting, moving, figuring out systems of moving people out of those places into places where that sort of lifestyle is less indulged and less encouraged would be one way to deal with it. Maybe not a federal program, but you know, there are lots of different ways you could approach that. But more generally speaking, you know, if you had, if you have to surmise what the cultural reasons for this change are, what are the top culprits? Clearly, there's been a sea change in norms, Jonah. You've just you've just spoken about it. I mean, to put it another way, um, let's just imagine we had a time machine uh, and we took all of our existing uh, social welfare programs back to Salem, Massachusetts in uh, 1680. Uh, what proportion of the population there do you think would enroll in disability programs and food stamps and so forth? I don't know right. exactly. I mean, it's inconclusive. It's a thought experiment. But I bet a lot less because there are a lot of people there who would have thought that that is sloth and sloth is a deadly sin and you go to hell with that. Um, to, to be a little bit less dramatic about it, you can just look at the difference between 1965 and today. I mean, all of these changes that I write about in Men Without Work post-pandemic edition kind of began around 65. I mean, the the whole panoply of civil rights protections hadn't really kicked in in, in 65, right? But mm -hmm. African-American men in 65 had higher work rates than Anglos do today, 
than Anglo guys do today. Now, think of all of the advantages that Anglo guys today have over black men in 65, and yet uh, a uh, distinctly larger share of them are out of the workforce altogether. Uh, I think you can't explain that uh, in terms of economic and structural change, which is one of the favorite explanations in academic and policy circles. Um, yeah, so this is the thing I was I was uh, going after strain a little bit, and I, was, I, I admit I was he's fun to turn into a straw man, but um, you know a lot of our people on the center right, when it comes to economics, you know. Conservatives generally don't believe that in homo economicus and, you know, and all that. But when it comes to economics, when it comes to economics, we kind of revert to it and think everything is about economic incentives. I think economic incentives and disincentives are hugely important. But as you say, if you, if you take the Salem model um, or even the 1960s model, uh, economic incentives only tell part of the part of the story. And um, I think that one of the things conservative, I think policymakers in general, looking at sort of the whole human um, and the whole sort of social experience, we could have some b- better policy formulation than just thinking it's about economic um, inputs and outputs. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things which is, I think, so unfortunate is that our policy elites, and I mean, I include myself in this, uh, our, you know, so our describing and deciding, uh, you know, a strata are so out of touch personally with the realities which uh, which I'm describing uh, in Men Without Work. I mean, um, I mean, Charles Murray nailed this 10 years ago uh, in Coming Apart. It's the the stratification that we've had in modern America means that uh, means that a lot of people who do the writing and the analyzing don't actually know from personal experience what this world is like that, uh, you know, that, that I'm describing statistically in this book. Yeah, no, it's funny. It, it, it sort of works going in both directions because uh, I think it was Megan McArdle. I can't remember who, but someone pointed out that basically as a matter of consensus among elite Washington journalists, the definition of rich is just outside what your average highly compensated <laughs> journalist makes. <laughs> yeah. Funny thing. Funny thing. Yeah. And also you, you just get what you measure, you know? And so a lot of policymaking is, is looking for your car keys where the light is good because you can, you can talk about it, but it's very difficult to talk about the holes in people's souls and, particularly in a very secular age. Um, how much of this, I mean, how much do you, how much of this do you think, particularly for younger men is, is video games and or marijuana? We know some hints here from self-reported surveys of time use. They're hints. Okay. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in its nerdly wisdom, does this annual time use survey of adults of all of, you know of all ages and uh, both sexes, just you know to see what people say they do from you know waking up until going to bed and how long they sleep. Um, you know, they want to use that for you know 
understanding work patterns when people go to work and you know, that sort of stuff. They ask guys who are neither working nor looking for work about this too. And it's kind of horrifying. It's, I mean, it's really troubling. I mean, this is self-reporting. And remember, you know, everybody lies on surveys. So think which way right. the lying, in what direction the lying goes on this. Um, the self-reporting is almost no uh, civil society, almost no worship, uh, charitable work, volunteering. Although lots and lots of time on your hands, uh, surprisingly little help around the house, help with other members of the household, 2,000 hours a year, roughly speaking, sometimes more, uh, watching screens. Now, this gets mm -hmm. to your point. Uh, they don't ask what they're watching on screens, you know, like whether it's, you know, Call of Duty or porn or, you know, uh, National Geographic or something. I don't, I, they don't ask what they're watching, but, uh, but they're spending as much time watching stuff, uh, they say, as uh, a lot of people have full-time jobs. And from some other work on time use surveys, um, we know that about almost half of these guys say that they are daily using pain medication. Now, mm -hmm. not necessarily, you know, uh, opioids, but that's a lot of pain medication and a lot of couch. Yeah. Um, and the two might encourage each other. Mm -hmm. You know, because one of these things that I think is sort of, and I notice it myself in this, like this, just the stupid games that I play on my phone from time to time. I, knowing my own limitations, I stopped playing real video games a long time ago because I could, I knew, I knew the second world when World of Warcraft came out that mm -hmm. I could get lost in there for years. And I just said, you know, not today, Satan, and turned my back <laughs> on all of it. The video game developers have gotten very, very good at, mimicking the sense of feeling productive of feeling like you accomplished something today by reaching a next level or replenishing, you know, whatever. I mean, like there's, it's whether it's the stupid sort of Sim city kind of things or whether it's call of duty. Um, you, 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 you overhear when I talk to like when I hear my nephews and some people talking just about how, you know, what did you do today? Well, I reached the next level as if like that's, you know, your accomplishment for the day. And that is one of these things I don't think gets nearly enough attention is the way that, you know, we are satisfying that, that taste bud in people's, in men's brains to feel like they accomplished something with things that are just basically, you know, simulations of actual accomplishment. I mean, I think that's a really important point. Uh, and for the record, I haven't played video games for over 20 years because my, you know, 12-year-old son you know, would kick my pants all around the you know, apartment. It wasn't even fun. <laughs> so fun for me. It was a lot of fun for him. <laughs> so I haven't, I haven't been, uh, I'm, I'm kind of out of the market, but I'll take your word on uh, on all of this. There, ha yeah. there have been some studies, as you know, by economists who have looked at this and say that the the tech what they would call the technological improvements in the game, uh, you know, game world has really uh, revolutionized things and really brought a lot of people in. It's a, uh, it is a sad picture to me as a non-gamer to see people, you know, losing their lives in here when they're not having their real lives. But uh, I mean, I think this is part of 
the new misery that we have in the United States that I've written written about elsewhere. You know, the Victorians understood in their bones the difference between poverty and misery. I mean, they would have called vice, um, but. Nowadays, I think our policymakers don't quite always get that you know you can have a fairly high standard of living by any sort of kind of historical measure and still you know live in this way that's kind of degraded and miserable, which mm-hmm. also also tracks with what we're seeing with the deaths of despair. Right. Right. I mean, so you know, the, the, one of the things that our former fearless leader. Arthur Brooks talks so much about, you know, the concept of earned success. Yes. There are lots of people who have very low incomes, who have very high levels of earned success. And when you have high levels of earned success, you also, you know, part, part, you know, in some senses, earned success is just simply synonymous with dignity. And you have high level, you know, there are people who do, you know, there are high school janitors who are loved by the school and are highly valued and they're missed when they don't show up. They don't make a lot of money, but they live, they feel like they have a, a high return psychically, emotionally, maybe even spiritually on their efforts in ways that people who make a lot more money may not. And that people who, who for whom money is not the issue, who are just because they're on a couch taking disability and playing video games or getting high, they don't have either of those things. I mean, they just, they don't have the income, nor do they have the dignity. And it's, 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 it's very depressing when you think about it. Well, you've put your finger on a terribly important point, I think, Jonah. It's, uh, I mean, there is this uh, pernicious, condescending, poisonous idea, you know, in elevated circles that there is uh, some jobs that are meaningless and there's some work that's not worth doing. I mean, you and I, having been in the work world for a while, both know from personal experience and people who haven't been in have to trust me listening to this, but um, work is a service to others that helps you complete yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. it, has, it has enormous and far-reaching non-pecuniary implications, and that's true, uh, that's true for all of the, you know, problem with men without work as well it helps you it helps you connect to the world in a way that uh as i said that completes you and it also makes it easier kind of like to connect with community to connect with family for some people to connect with faith Uh, part of what we see in america today with this collapse of trust in institutions is this disconnection being disconnected from everything and you know you just you just epitomized an image of this disconnection you know on the couch stone play you know gaming I always thought, I mean, this is a little off topic, but it just popped in my head. I, you know, there's all this data, maybe I got it from you or one of our other colleagues, at least first, is, you know, that men, when they get married and really when they have kids, become wildly more productive, you know. And I've always had different theories, in part because of my own experience of getting married and then having a kid, um, about what, because I saw that in myself. And I think part of it is just this, nod towards, you know, this, this redirection towards seriousness that, okay, now I'm, I'm other directed, I'm living for others. And, you know, there's a little bit of that sort of masculine privilege stuff about, 
being the breadwinner and the provider, which I, I'm not trying to dismiss. I think is an incredibly serious and valuable thing for men to feel. Um, but I always also thought that part of it was, and I don't think this is a trivial point, that because women, particularly in the early years of parenthood, there's really, I mean, look, I mean, I get it. There are same-sex couples. There are all sorts of things going, you know, there are all sorts of anecdotal deviations from this norm. But the truth is, is that women tend to have a disproportionate share of the burden of parenting when with newborn babies and when they're little kids. And they kind of want it that way. And I think that one of the things that happens to men is they feel like other than chores around the house, the only way that they can make a similar amount of effort is by working harder and working more. And, um, and some of it is just to sort of get away from diapers, I'm sure. But these sort of transformative things, they're so difficult to put into sort of policy programs. But um, they're really the, the stuff where, where the, meanings, the, 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 the meaning and satisfaction of life comes from. Yeah, well, you know, if you take a look at why the reasons that people say they're out of the workforce, there is an absolutely gigantic care chasm between guys and girls, right? Mm. I mean, you know, it's an order of magnitude different. I mean, guys would say, you know, 2%, 3%, 4% of them say that they're out of the workforce because they're taking care of family members, I mean, people in the home. The surveys aren't, you know, distinct enough to say exactly whom, and whereas it'll be, you know, 10 times that uh, fraction for women. So mm -hmm. whether this is a social construct or sociobiology, I'll leave it to others, but it's, it's very for real. And what's also very for real is this uh, provider impulse that you describe. I mean, and I'm not just speaking from personal experience. Uh, it's, if you take a look at the information for our country, the profiles for our country, um, guys with kids under the, the same roof, no matter whether they're married or not, are way more likely to be in the workforce. Guys who are married uh, are way more likely to be in the workforce. Despite all of the uh, ethnic gaps in the United States, or maybe but because think of it because of the uh, ethnic gaps, uh, black guys who are married are more likely to be in the workforce than white guys who are not married. I mean, the the you know the, the marriage thing trumps the race thing in modern America. So these are uh, these are real and powerful uh, you know forces that we see, and it, it means that for the guys who are not providers, uh, the question of exactly who am I uh, becomes <laughs> becomes very acute. Yeah, I mean, I remember. I mean, I, I forgot about this, but like there was a, the last time I remember looking at this, there was a, and, and I think this is the best illustration of this point about uh, about wanting to talk in numbers because it's easier and it's it, there's a certain materialistic worldview that's that wants to deal with concrete things like numbers. But I mean, at least it was true at least a few years ago that the benefits of being married in terms of lifetime income. Yeah were very close to the benefits to going to college. And yet think about how many professors you had in college or that your kids had or how many teachers say it's really important to, be, to get married 
versus say it's really important to go to college. (laughs) (laughs) Well put, well put. Well, let me mention uh, uh, while we were talking about data, some of the gaps in the data, because you alluded Uh to that earlier. To my uh, to my eye, the biggest and most inexcusable gap in the data is about XCOMs in the United States. You mm-hmm. know, we've had we all know we've had this expl- since the '60s. We've had this explosion of crime followed by an explosion of punishment. You know, the crime levels were going down for a while. Now they're going back up again. Maybe we'll have another explosion of punishment. I don't know, but the. the uh, the end result is that we now have maybe something like 25 million uh, people who are alive and have been sentenced to a felony in our population. Now we talk about mass incarceration, and that's you know that's a serious you know question. Mass incarceration. There are about two million people, a little more than two million people behind bars. For every person behind bars, there are ten. Con- uh, convicts or ex-cons in general society. And our government collects uh, almost no information on them. This me- I mean, what I'm telling you is that about one in seven adult guys today has a felony conviction in his background. And this is, in effect, an invisible population. It's probably more than one in seven for the prime age guys. So there's a huge amount of I know what we would call it, you know, kind of XCOM limbo that's mm-hmm. also part of this uh, situation. And that there's very little, uh, very little statistically descriptive information about. And I have no idea why the U.S. government is so, you know, uh, stubbornly incurious about that, because we might be able to get a lot of people you know, more successfully back into the workforce and families and societies if we just looked at this. So this is a little off topic from the book, but you're one of these people I like to ask this question of. If in the Biden administration's infinite wisdom, they made you the head of the census or whatever the, uh, or I don't know, the Department of Commerce or whatever the right position would be, and you got the federal government to collect, you could tell the federal government to collect any data you wanted by any means that you thought best methodologically. What is the data, whether it's relevant to men without work or, or otherwise, what is the data that you just, you, because you're a data, you know, you like, you, 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 some people, you know, plants live on photosynthesis. You sort of live (laughs) on data. Um, what data do you wish they collected that they don't? Well, there's there's so much, Jonah, but on this general topic, we've got a sort of a Bermuda Triangle in the United States where people kind of like go into it and they don't seem to come out of it. And these are the long-termers out of the labor force on disability, on um, addictive substances, uh, we could, without almost any trouble, uh, link up the stuff that comes out already, the monthly jobs information, with the stuff on 
parole and probation with the stuff on disability programs. And there are a lot of different ones that don't talk to each other, by the way, but with bringing, you know, you know uh, be the gatherer of all the disability programs. Um, and some of the stuff that we have from our health and human services from the CMS on prescriptions and what sorts of medications people are using. It is. It would be possible to do all of that, and you would have a. I think probably, probably something would make you cry, but you would have really detailed information about the you know what I'd call the new misery in the United States. This uh, you know um, collision of uh, you know, worklessness, addiction. Uh, uh, criminality and sentencing, uh, and you know, this long-term kind of like dropouts from American society. I, th I think that would be maybe the single most useful humanitarian thing that we could cast light on. And I, I should just say, it's sort of apropos of almost nothing or as, as a bit of a non sequitur, we're not talking about everybody who plays video games or everybody who smokes pot. We're not talking about everybody, you know, we're talking about a, 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 a distinct population that's worrisomely large. I can almost hear the emails in the comments section for people saying, I play video games and I'm not a wastrel on a couch. And I, was like, I get that. Right. There are also people who have one or two cocktails a night or a week who aren't alcoholics. They're, they're, we're talking about people who can't cope with the, the structural and economic forces that we have right now and are sort of at the bottom, that are pooling up at the bottom of the socioeconomic system. Um, we're not talking about the people who have managed to cope and manage with all of this stuff. I do, I do want to ask, because we, we sort of, I mean, it's, it is a book called Men Without Work, but what's going on with women? Very interesting question. I talk about that a little bit as well. Um, I mean, one thing that we know since the pandemic is that we've gone from this, uh, what I initially uh, framed as a men without work problem, to a work without men or women problem. We've had that we're in the middle of, of a labor shortage, a nationwide labor shortage, right, Jonah? I mean, we've got 11 million unfilled jobs in the United States. And uh, even though even though we've got 11 million unfilled jobs, we've got about 4 million people fewer in the workforce than we would have expected on pre-COVID trend. And that, I mean, we've had a catastrophic death total from COVID, but that's mostly with people older working ages, only like a tenth of that and a tiny fraction of that by comparison would be uh, prime age. So we're seeing, we're seeing more of a... I think more of signs of a uh, men without work syndrome among certain groups of younger women, uh, among in particular prime age women who are not currently married and who have no kids at home. Uh, this is a this is a group of about almost three million. Uh, people right now by comparison to the seven plus million male dropouts from the workforce. And we're starting to see from these time use surveys, uh, you know, kind of time use patterns and pain medication patterns that are a little too close for comfort to what we've been seeing from the male dropouts. Demographically, 
the same, would you say it's the same sort of breakdowns, uh, ethnically, racially, um, as best you can glean them that they are for, for, for men? Uh, very, not identical, but quite similar. I mean, it's, it's exactly the over low, uh, lower educational status is overrepresented. Um, it, it's about the same ethnic profile as for the, uh, for the male work, workforce dropouts. Uh, also, um, as I said, they were not currently married. So, you know, they're, uh, they're in that, you know, right. part of the structure and, and similarly also with, um, native born women. Yeah. So, um, we're so, well, I'm not supposed to be, but you're supposed to be, um, in the solution business to a certain extent. What, what are we supposed to do about all of this? I, I didn't see on Google where I could summon a great awakening, right? I mean, I didn't find <laughs> out where I could do that. My um, my much better half, Mary Eberstadt, says that she'd settle for a little awakening, but uh, leave that aside. And we certainly don't want to get the government into uh, the business of um, uh, <laughs> having a department of great awakening. Um, <laughs> it is beyond the immediate... Um, reach of government to fix the American family structure back to, say, circa 1965. And uh, so with the real existing levers that we have, I mean, some of the things we could do would be to look at look at filling the uh, gap in what we are not supposed to call vocational education anymore. That term, as you probably know, is now politically incorrect to educators, which may indicate kind of part of the problem. Uh, we've got this terribly um, uh, un- um, uneven uh, school system in the United States with respect to outcomes. And a lot of people get out of K through 12 without a marketable skill. I mean, college may not be for everybody, but everybody should end up their education with a marketable skill that they can make a living by. So we've got, mm-hmm. a big, we've got a big gap there. We have to do something about our disability system. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a generous system because I don't think it particularly is, but it does have the unintended consequence of subsidizing uh, helplessness and dependence, which is a terrible loss of potential for the supposed recipients. Um, the way to think about it, I believe, would be how would you rebuild this as a system with a work first principle? Uh, and you know, you and I both know that any sort of intervention has unintended consequences. So there'd be unintended consequences from a welfare state with a work first principle. I just kind of it might even be more expensive than the one we have now. It it's, it certainly could be. I just tend to think that it would be have. Uh, less bad unintended consequences. Then there's this whole uh, problem that I mentioned about invisible ex-cons. You can't have evidence-based policies for bringing them, you know, people who are rehabilitated and who want to, you know, lead good good lives. You can't um, you can't have evidence-based policies for re-entry and bring them back into society unless you have the evidence. And, uh, you know, I don't think that this is a benign neglect, uh, just leaving them as an invisible population there. Uh, there are things which government cannot do, and I mentioned some of them already. Uh, there are things that I think only we in civil society can do, and part of that is you know, kind of like to state the obvious and talk the truth about the importance of 
work, not just for financial reasons, but for all of the, uh, you know, uplifting non-financial reasons as well. Uh, so I, I don't know if you have an answer to this. This is just an observation. I'm curious what you think about it, how to get at this. Uh, Whitaker Chambers, famously among a very small group of nerds like me, famously said that he was not a conservative. He was a man of the right because he couldn't let go of his Marxian obsession with the means of production as the determinant of culture. And maybe I'm being slightly unfair to him, but I think that's that's a fairly accurate thing. And, you know, I just had a couple of weeks ago, our friend, uh, Marion Tupi, who co-wrote this sure. book, Superabundance, which is great. And I agree with so much of its thesis. Marion was a huge help to me when I was writing my book. But it seems to me that one of the reasons why you can, you're going to have this problem of people sort of checking out is that when you reach a level of prosperity, that what we're, you know, if you look at like, you know, he does these time comparisons. Sure. How long did you have to work to get a meal? If you had to work eight hours to feed yourself, odds are you were going to work, right? But if if you can get a happy meal for essentially the equivalent of eight minutes worth of work, and you can borrow eight minutes worth of work, or you can get eight minutes worth of work from the government, um, the ability to sort of live a subsistence lifestyle is just so much easier than it would have been a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago that, I mean, let's put it this way. Let's say we lived in a Star Trek universe where we all had replicators that could make us our food by just rearranging atoms for free. Um, you could just see a whole lot of people saying, well, why do you want me to go into the office? Um, and I'm just wondering, I, I think the problem is excessive, but there will all, it seems to me that this is going to be to some extent endemic in modern, super abundant capitalist societies simply because it's possible to live that way. And there's going to be a statistically relevant number of people who, either through misfortune or choice, are going to chew, are going to be stuck living that way. Is that, is that an incredibly hard hearted way of seeing this? Um, well, if it is, we're, um, we're in the same hard-hearted boat together, <laughs> Jonah. I mean, I love Marion's work. And what, what you're describing, I mean, makes me think of uh, Keynes's essay back in 1930, The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, right? Mm -hmm, I mean, so mm -hmm. he, he was bold enough in 1930 to say, hey, folks, a century from now, we're going to be a whole lot richer. That was a bold thing to say in the depths of the Depression. And he said, he argued that the big problem for future generations is what to do with all of the free time that we're going to have. Now, mm -hmm. he wasn't quite on the mark yet. I mean, his, you know, his uh, um, way back machine wasn't quite right. He was saying maybe there'd be a 10 or 12 hour work week uh, in, you know, 2030. Um, we have this strange situation in the United States where people who are working are actually working more hours than in like Japan. Uh, whereas uh, we've got this huge population of unworking guys, which is a much larger proportion of uh, our, you know, prime male guys than in other countries, uh, other rich countries. Uh, so there's, we have this kind of, um, uh, 
uh, incorrect habit of mind that we're trained into if you ever took kind of economics courses where they uh, tell you that free time, they, instead of using the word free time, they use the word leisure. Okay. Leisure is a very particular use of free time. It is when you use free time as in a restorative manner or in a manner that kind of uplifts you. You can also use free time in a way that degrades you and degrades other people. There's about 2,000 years of Christian tradition talking about sloth and, mm-hmm. uh, and sloth being a, a deadly sin and a sin that can also affect other people and cause them to sin, which is the meaning of the term scandal and all of that sort of stuff. So at the end of the day, um, when we have uh, when we have this prospect of using free time, we need to have something like a moral gyroscope to uh, to help us uh, stay on a track where our use of free time is restorative and uplifting. And if if we are in a world where we don't, where we're not. Uh, part of the paid workforce, there are a lot of things you can do. Uh, you were mentioning them earlier, Arthur Brooks's idea of earned success. There's all sorts of charitable work and volunteering and other things that you can do that you know, you're out of the workforce, but you're you're not courting a death of despair. Um, we, we need to have the sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, the, the moral or ethical or metaphysical map that'll help people stay away from the things that are going to lead them towards the deaths of despair. One of the other things that you are um, expert on, uh, to use a kind of prosaic term, is uh, f- fertility rates generally don't, you know, which is sort of the essence of demography. Um, how much of, I mean, how much of this ties into the U.S.? I mean, like, how much of, of this tells a story about our declining fertility rates? And what is the interrelation between the two? Uh, well, very interesting question. And I'm, um, one of the things that social scientists are super bad at doing is accurately forecasting fertility mm-hmm. because um, at the end of the day, to do that well, you, you know, you don't want a Nobel laureate in economics. You want a Nobel laureate in literature because, you know, somebody <laughs> who understands, you know, the human heart and zeitgeist yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So we're never going to do that. Uh, we're never going to be able to forecast uh, future birth rates terribly well until they're all outsourced into factories or something, <laughs> some dystopia in the future. But what we have seen is we've seen um, – We've seen a real change in outlook and attitude for the younger people who are, you know, much of the um, much of the childbearing age groups. Um, there's there's a lot less optimism among younger people in the United States. Um, there's a lot more anxiety. Uh, there's a lot more alienation. Um, a, a lot less confidence about their own personal circumstances than in the past. I mean, with those as kind of like background music, I don't think it's terribly surprising that we've seen a birth slump more or less, you know, heading towards European uh, levels in the United States. Um, 
We've had very low, we've had sub-replacement at least, birth rates in the United States before, back in the 70s, never quite as low as they are right now. Um, we remember that after the 70s, there was this turnaround in the 80s, and there was a new kind of time of confidence, and American birth levels became weirdly high by relation to other countries. I'm not saying that that can't happen again, but I don't think it's going to happen again unless you have a big change in attitudes. I think the attitudes are more, outlook attitudes, values are more important than the material circumstances that uh, my, uh, my brother economists focus on so much. Yeah, no, it's funny. You had, earlier, you brought up the the Great Awakening, and I was giving Strain a hard time. I mean, I just like giving Strain a hard time. But, uh, <laughs> I was giving Strain a hard time about this question about economic incentives versus other things. And I said, look, you know, first of all, he kind of wanted to say that the Industrial Revolution was the result of of economic uh, ideas rather than you know stuff that was further upstream, which I, he then kind of got off of. But I, I had made the point that if you wanted to boost American productivity um, overnight and you could snap your fingers to do it, the way you would do it is you would have another great awakening, sure. right? You would just imbue all sorts of people with this notion that work is service to God and that, uh, that thrift and delayed gratification and honest dealing and, and, and hard work are their own rewards and they're the they're the sources of status and, and status and meaning, which are two different things. Um, but they're very much related. That would get us going much faster, much more robustly than any tax credit. And, um, but that's out of the purview of government to do. And so similarly, one of the things that's always, I always sort of struck me about, about you is there is this temptation among <sighs> I, I say this with love, your ilk, you are remarkably immune to, which is that the, the people who pour over the data, they start getting ideas about if only I were in power, I would be able to fix these problems. I mean, I think that hubris almost defines the great society, defines the New Deal, is these guys with this sort of Deweyan pragmatism, understanding of, of how experts can run things if you just give them the access to the control panel and you've you're i don't know if you would call yourself a libertarian but you are decidedly skeptical of state interventions every time i've ever talked to you or heard you talk and so i'm, I'm kind of curious because there's this big debate going on now about pronatalism and as you know i used to work for ben wattenberg who could not be more pronatalist if he tried and at the same time, it seems like a very mixed record at all these, you know, you look at Hungary, you look at these various places, it's, it's, it's trying to push the wet noodle up, you know, up the carpet, um, trying to get people to have more babies. Do you think there is a way for the state to successfully do that that is not authoritarian or unduly coercive? Well, I mean, let me put my cards on the table. I'm a Catholic convert with four kids. Okay, mm. so I come. You're from doing a, your part. I come from a particular <laughs> place, and uh, other people may, you know, want one of my. I've used some other people's like uh, coupons or credits, and thank you very much, whoever <laughs> you were. I'm very skeptical about the uh, 
possibility, the demographic possibilities of a pronatal policy. Now, you may say that you want to have baby uh, bonuses or family benefits for some other sort of reason. Uh, uh, They think that you want to subsidize families for some uh, other reason that wins on its own merits. Okay. But if you're saying that you're going to do this because you think that the baby bribes are going to make women have more kids, I don't think there's a lot of evidence to back you up. Now, of course, more or less everybody in France will disagree with me because uh, the French demographers and the French government uh, believe that their policies are the reason that the French women have more children than the German women, which was the original focus of all of their demography back in the you know 1800s. Uh, but I think it's. Uh, from what I can tell, the it's very expensive for really kind of modest um, demographic impact to dangle kind of um, you know monetary benefits in front of families. Uh, you take a look, the, the Swedes who have done this uh, more than many have researchers who describe what they call the uh, the Swedish roller coaster. And the Swedish roller coaster is that you bring out a new you know panoply of benefits and some and then the birth rate goes up and then a year or so later the birth rate goes back down again it goes back down lower than where it was before because you affected the timing of some people's choices who were kind of on the fence you you, you didn't kind of like open the you know open the gates uh and if you look at russia if you look at singapore if you look at other places that have uh done done their own kind of like efforts in pronatalism i don't think they've got that much to show what i'm really scared about uh is what's going to happen in china as the authoritarian state wheels towards pronatalism and they deploy perhaps this uh, creepy new uh social credit mechanism that they have to uh kind of nudge people in all sorts of different ways in their life they say oh mr wong uh you don't have any kids i'm afraid you can't really fly on our airplanes anymore or miss mm-hmm. lee you're not married you really think you can get an apartment i mean it may turn out that by having really subtle totalitarian pressures You'll be able to coerce people the same way that the Chinese government used more or less bayonets to push down the birth rate. But we don't know about that yet. I know we're going outside the remit, but just one last, since you brought up China. So the the consensus among most right-wingers and I think most left-wingers and most of the people in the middle these days is that the bet that the West made in the 1990s on incorporating China into the global trading order would lead to liberalization and ultimately democracy in China was wrong, that it was a bad bet, we screwed it up, and it didn't work. And I got to say, as of this moment, the evidence for that is really, really strong, you know, um, hard for me to argue with it. At the same time, I cannot resist the compulsion to put a comma in the word yet at the end of the sentence and say, it didn't work yet because while the timetable was always going to be in doubt, we still don't have a lot of examples of countries getting rich without eventually becoming democratic. And the, the there may be cultural distinctiveness to China that changes that equation. And there may be 
technological abilities that allow them to keep the can down the road for the reasons that you're sort of suggesting. But countries change. It's the democratic tra- democratic transitions are sort of like Hemingway's definition of bankruptcy. They're very gradual until they're sudden. Where are you on all of this? Are you just are are you have you given up the ghost on on hopes for China in our lifetimes? My friend and AEI colleague uh, Dan Blumenthal and I wrote a little booklet called uh, China Unquarantined, which deals with all of this, Jonah. And the elevator version is that we made a bet that was not a crazy bet when we started off in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, thinking that we could incorporate China into the world economy and maybe even into the system of international governance that we developed for our you know, post-war liberal order. But the bet the bet is wrong. Uh, the Chinese dictatorship had thought about you know what <laughs> might come out of this as well and has its own ideas about that. And we have a problem in the United States now, unlike anyone we've ever had to deal with before, because the Soviet Union wasn't a trading partner, mm-hmm. it wasn't a trading power. We now have, uh, we now have integration with China in all sorts of ways that can politicize our lives from within. I mean, obvious, you know, obvious vision of this is what's happened with the NBA, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't, we don't even have the language for talking about how to deal with this tangle that we've gotten ourselves into. Now that said, that said, you know, there are a lot of things that go on that we can't foresee, and there are a lot of things that the brilliant planners in Beijing can't foresee either. When they, um, when they relaxed their uh, one-child policy back in 2015, they thought that they could fine-tune the population of their country, that they could make their subjects, you know, kind of like have babies the way that you kind of teach people, like teach uh, pets to do tricks, right? Mm -hmm. And instead, what's happened since then is that there has been an absolutely extraordinary plunge in birth rates in China, if the numbers are to be believed. Uh, There's been a 40% drop in like six years. Started before the uh, before the pandemic, and there's also been a plunge in marriage. Now, I mean, if you were to look at that, you know, from kind of uh, I'd say from outer space, but that's not quite right. If you were to if you were to be a social scientist and just see those numbers without any context, you'd say this is a place that's in an extraordinary crisis. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. it's a famine, maybe it's a war. It's obviously a huge disruption. The Chinese dictatorship isn't acting like there's a disruption uh, amongst their subjects. And maybe they know something uh, we don't, or maybe they're missing something big. It's interesting. We'll, we'll have you back on to talk about that another time. Um, just because I want to bring it back there onto the book, and since this book is a, is an update from the pre-pandemic one a few years ago, how has the pandemic changed these trends, either making them worse or mitigating them? Um, and also, what are the, what are some of the, from your perspective, what are some of the stories of the, some of the takeaways for social scientists and demographers of the pandemic generally? I remember at the very beginning thinking, my God, we're going to have 10 years of PhD dissertations using the data from the pandemic because it's just so rare you get such a wild change in 
human behavior universally across whole societies. And um, there's got to be some some interesting stuff in the works coming out. But what did the pandemic do to these trends and um, and anything else that you sort of thought is overlooked about the pandemic? Oh, thank you, John. I mean, so in uh, in the post-pandemic edition of Men Without Work, I try to take us up to date. One of the things which astonished me, I hadn't expected this, is that the trend line in worklessness in uh, workforce dropouts uh, for prime age men is just a straight line uh, from the first edition six years ago to now, which is to say you can plot a line from 1965 to 2016, and where we are now is just a straight continuation of that line. Uh, hmm. it, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's like some sort of geological thing. It's not like a social <laughs> science thing. I cannot explain that. I cannot, it is eerie, the regularity with which we've seen this retreat from the workforce. So that's continued and that has worsened. But what has also occurred is that we've seen a, as I said, we've seen this uh, uh, labor shortage, this extraordinary peacetime labor shortage that has to be explained. It can't be explained by the terrible losses we suffered in the pandemic itself, because that was mainly for much older people. Um, It can be partly explained maybe by drop-off in immigration. You know, migration numbers are always spotty, but maybe that's got a quarter of it. Uh, What Mm -hmm. we've mainly seen is a drop in uh, labor force participation from before the pandemic. And it's it's not all just the guys. Uh, This gap in the labor force is disproportionately new groups that weren't kind of subject to this before the pandemic. Uh, To some degree, younger women, a lot of older Americans, 55 plus, uh, some 65 to 74 also. Uh, I think that we can't understand what's happened unless we look at not just the virus, but also the government's uh, response to the emergency. And in in rescuing the world from the risk of another Great Depression, the unintended consequences, of course, were huge. Um, you know, any big intervention has you know big unintended consequences, and we shot a fire hose of money at the American populace to prevent you know the breakdown of the economy, uh, which resulted in the only uh, the, the only historical example of an improvement in disposable income and improvement in savings rates during a national economic crisis that we've ever seen I think and mm. it's all you know obviously on the basis of borrowed money so there are about two and a half trillion dollars of above trend savings in people's pockets at the end of 2021 from the pandemic interventions. And I think that has something to do with the lower labor force participation that we see today. It's hard to tease it all out, but it's kind of hard to argue that um, that the big wealth effects that we had from the pandemic policies haven't had a disincentivizing impact. All right. Uh, uh, Nick Eberstadt, uh Thank you so much for coming on The Remnant. I hope you'll be back. 
Force me. Force me. <laughs> um, and the, the book, again, is uh, Men Without Work, second edition. We will put a link to it and all the various other things um, that Nick has written about it uh, in the show notes. And I highly recommend it and everything basically Nick Eberstadt does. Hey, Jonah, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. All right. So uh, Nick Eberstadt has left the studio. Um, uh, I really was not kidding. He's like, uh, they're just a handful of people at AI that everyone else is like, oh, he's smart. And I, if you are at all interested in these issues, uh, I, I can't think of a more honest broker about this stuff. I mean, and I think it's, it's an important point I was trying to make before, and I probably did it in a ham-fisted way. When you have well-intentioned expert people who deal with data day in and day out, and they, they, it's a natural human thing to think, okay, I can fix this problem if I was just given the tools to fix it. And I think that's one of the reasons why you get so many technocrats who want to go into government is because they think for sincere and in some ways admirable reasons that if, if they could only get you know, the keys to the kingdom, they could fix these terrible social problems. And I think that's true of, uh, I mean, disproportionately of progressives, but, you know, there are a lot of conservatives who think that way too. Um, and Nick doesn't think that way. I mean, that doesn't mean he doesn't offer solutions for anything, but I think that's one, of, because he doesn't think that way, it makes him a more honest broker. Um, because if you actually have the psychology that says, if I can only get in power, I could fix all of this stuff. Over time, I think there's a certain seduction that comes with that, that you start doing special pleading uh, for your pet ideas so you can get into power. And, I, you know, people like Robert Reich um, strike me as that kind of person. And maybe I'm being unfair to him, but I kind of doubt it. Um, similarly, like Elizabeth Warren, I think that mindset takes you kind of there. And um, and Nick just wants to wallow in the numbers and do good work and come up with the best recommendations he can. Um, anyway, uh, it was great to have him on. It was great to have Michael on. Um, we got some exciting shows coming up next week, which I will uh, keep secret. And uh, man, we are firing on all cylinders at the dispatch. Uh, Ala Pundit, a.k.a. Nick Cattagio, has, has, has entered the uh, building. Um, and he's, I think, going to write every day. Um, and, uh, Kevin Williamson's on board. We just did a dispatch live with him, which was a lot of fun. And, um, and more great things are coming down the pike. So if you can become a member, uh, and subscribe, uh, that would be awesome. It would be great for us. We would get to do more great things sooner. The more people we have, um, who are signed up. And, uh, if you can join us in Naples for the big after election event, uh, that would be awesome as well. You can find a link to all that in the show notes. And other than that, I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.